The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Good morning, everyone. This is, a, this is a big weekend here, well, actually everywhere in, in America right now. This is a Memorial Day weekend, as you know, and uh, it's also in the church calendar worldwide. This is the Sunday in which we remember Pentecost. So there's a, a lot to consider this morning. Pentecost, uh, the day in which the Holy Spirit of God fell upon 120 believers in an upper room, and they began to, to then work in the power of the Holy Spirit to completely transform their world for the sake of the gospel. And my prayer is that God would pour out that power here, that he would do a mighty work through this church. It's also Memorial Day weekend, and and I know that's a weekend in which we we go outside in the sun and we enjoy hot dogs and hamburgers and all that kind of wonderful stuff. But um, if if you know what this holiday is all about, it's about those who have laid down their lives in service to this country for the sake of our freedom. And what I've uh, known throughout the years, I know this very personally because my, my cousin actually gave his life in service in Afghanistan. And uh, so it's always a, a very difficult uh, holiday in some ways for, for our family as we remember uh, his heroism, his, his sacrifice. And, and what you'll hear from soldiers when they come back from war is that they're really, when it comes down to it on the battlefield, those that give their lives in service, it, when it comes down to it in the moment, it, it doesn't seem to be at all about protecting freedoms or about hot dogs and hamburgers back home or even about a country or a flag. It's, it's for the sake of their brother to their right or to their left to lay down their lives for their, their brothers in arms. And uh, Jesus gives us this even more ultimate example of that. As he lays down his life, not just for brothers in arms, those who are, are dear to him, he lays down his life for all of us who, though we were, are rebels against him, though we sin against him, though, though, though we are in opposition toward him, he lays down his life for us. Greater love. Greater love hath, hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus it calls you friends, even though we have treated him uh, so horribly through our sin and through our, our murder of him on a cross. But, but what I want to do today is I want to just pause and, and pray. Um, the, this is not the subject matter of today's sermon. You can turn to Mark chapter 12 to get to where we'll be today. But let's, let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we do remember this Memorial Day, those who have laid down their lives, men and women who have given their all for this country, that we might have uh, freedom, Lord, and these are freedoms we don't take for granted, freedoms to worship and, and glorify you, freedoms to share and spread your word, Lord, freedoms to stand up for what is right and true in the public sphere, Lord. We can do that because of, of the sacrifice of so many. So we honor their lives today, Lord. We think of all the families that have lost, and we pray for your comfort to be upon them as they remember with gratitude their lost loved ones. And Lord, we we especially thank you for what you did in sending your son to willingly go to a cross in our place, Lord, to die for for those that that don't deserve it, Lord. We don't deserve your grace and your mercy, and yet you pour it out on us in such abundance, Lord. And we are grateful. So grateful this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I was talking to... um, one of our, our deacons, Scooter, and this is a, a subject that, you know, preachers have to wrestle with regularly. It's this question of, of how much do we, if at all, as preachers, address uh, politics from the pulpit? Now, don't get nervous, but this is a question that we all have to wrestle with, especially every four years. To what extent do preachers of the word uh, recognize what's going on in the political sphere and respond to it? And, and we have this tendency in this 
kind of post-enlightenment era in which we think that everything is separate in life. We have these separate categories. There are the things that are, are sacred, like our prayer and our worship and our gathering together as a church body, and there are things that are secular, things like our, our work and our recreation and, we, and our politics, and we hold these things away from each other. But what we see in Scripture is that, that Jesus didn't do this. This is a, a false dichotomy. Actually, what we see in Jesus' day is that the Jewish people, they had a very integrated life, in which their faith influenced everything that they did. Their faith was their politics. Their, their faith was their civic service. Their faith was the way they recreated. They, they would, their vacations weren't vacations. They were holy Sabbaths and feast weeks to the Lord. You see, it, it was integrated in every part of their life, a unified whole. We are not these dualistic beings. We are embodied souls. God has given breath in your lungs. He has given you a life to live. And the word of God speaks to every aspect of life, including the values with which you make your decisions, your, your, your political leanings, your so, social associations. And I think what we have is a, a tendency to think that to become a follower of Jesus is to withdraw, to become apolitical, especially if you're more the younger generation. That's what you kind of think. It's, it's to back off. If you're maybe in an older generation, you think, no, it's lean in, mix it up, make some noise uh, for the sake of that which is true and good. Follow through on your convictions. And what we, what we see from Jesus is not that he is apolitical, but rather when people come to follow Jesus, they actually grow stronger in their convictions, those which are biblical, stronger in their convictions and also more gracious towards those that don't agree with them. It's both of those things. I think when we look at the, the broad political spectrum, what you're going to find at the extreme of each end is godlessness. You will. And that's not that Jesus is some kind of perfect centrist. We'll see that in, in this passage this morning. He's not some kind of perfect centrist drawing everyone right to the middle. He will draw people to deep biblical convictions, and he will draw them to grace, grace and love towards their enemies, towards those that are opposed to them. This is what Christianity looks like. Do you know what you believe? Do, do, are your beliefs founded in the word of God? And are you full of love and grace in, in, for the sake of the gospel towards those that are not aligned with you? Let's look at this, this passage. The reason I, I bring this up this morning is because as, as we look at Mark chapter 12, starting in, let's see, it's uh, verse 13. Jesus is going to be pressed with one of the, the most uh, challenging political questions of his day, a very divisive question in which camps would be made, lines would be drawn, and there would be people on either side of this issue that he addresses this morning, and they want Jesus to make a decision, to make a call, to pick their party, to go into their camp. And what he's going to do is he is going to actually rise above their question. He's going to answer it directly. He's not going to, to skip around it. He's going to answer it directly, but he's going to call them to something above this. And he does this all the time. I love this. One of my favorite examples of this is two of the apostles that Jesus chose. He chooses Simon the Zealot. Do y'all know what a zealot is? This is basically like a, a guerrilla warfare terrorist against the Romans. Someone who is so fed up with the opposition that he, he wants to violently resist the Roman occupation. This is a guy that, you know this guy. Like he'd wear muscle shirts and, and it would say, I have the right to bear arms, like that kind of thing. He, this is that guy. He's on your Facebook feed right now posting stuff. You also see in Jesus's collection of disciples, this guy Levi or Matthew. And Matthew is a tax, tax collector for Rome. 
He is someone who would have been despised by Simon the Zealot. This is a guy who works for the oppressive Roman government by taking taxes from his fellow Jews. These guys could not have been, before Christ, they could not have been further apart on the political spectrum. And yet Jesus calls them both, and they become his apostles. And I can only imagine he made them room together on road trips. These guys uh, were called to be different as a result of being his followers. And and so while, while religion... And politics would have called one to close the door on the other. Jesus has this tremendous power to unite the most unlikely of people, the zealot and the tax collector, under the authority of a new kingdom and a new king. This is what Jesus does, and this is what he's going to do today as he's confronted with the the political question of his day. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. (laughs) They say he's objective. You can see the flattery in this. It's just dripping with flattery. Jesus, you speak your mind. You say say what's true. Um, And they're setting him up to have to respond, right? This is their objective. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? Is there an agenda behind this question? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's a, it's a calculated agenda. They've been working on this question for a long time. We've seen some of the other questions that they ask, and as Jesus responds to it, they are silenced as Jesus responds so well to their questions. And here they've come up with something that he has to answer, and no matter how he answers it, He's going to put himself in trouble. See, the the Pharisees and the scribes, these are strange allies. They would not have liked the Herodians. The Pharisees and the scribes would be the conservatives of the Jewish people, and they would have despised the foreign rule. And the Herodians, on the other hand, they were those that supported the Roman occupation with their loyalty and their dutiful collecting and enforcing of taxes. And so we know how despised the, the tax collectors are. We've, we've talked about this before, but these would have been the ones that are, are working for the government and supporting the government of Herod, the Herodians, that's where that name comes from, who is, is an ally, a, a close ally with serving the desires of Rome. And so this is, this is a, a very tense kind of situation you can imagine in this occupied land. And, and so we know this distaste for taxes. Any of you like taxes? Do any of you like taxes here? No? I actually talked to one person uh, once after a sermon about a tax collector in our church, and he said he actually doesn't mind tax time at all because he is able to then reflect on how good God has been in his provision to him and see the amount at which God has, has provided. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what the scripture says. And that's, that's one person in this church who's figured that out. That's pretty cool. Um, I hope to get there someday. <laughs> but most of us don't like taxes. And what we see in Scripture are, are there all kinds of, there are all kinds of extorted practices of the tax collectors of that day, taxes on all kinds of things that are very vague. But that's not what's going to be in view in this passage. What we have uh, in this passage are things called poll taxes, which would have been a one-coin tax annually just for the privilege of existing in Tiberius Caesar's empire. So if you have breath in your lungs and you live in his land, you owe him a tax just for existing. It was a flat tax. Everyone would pay the same tax. And so on the one hand, you have these ultra-conservatives who in their most extreme expressions would be like the zealots who would be violently opposed to Roman taxation and occupation or in tamer forms, these Pharisees and scribes. They would have been representative of the sovereign Jewish people who have one king and that is Adonai, that is God. 
they would have despised Roman rule and despised these taxes. And on the other hand, we have the Herodians who have developed this cozy relationship with Rome and are the surrogate enforcers of Roman rule in Judea. And so the gap is significant, and yet they come together in order to trap Jesus. And as Jesus is in Jerusalem, remember, it's the last week of his ministry before the cross. He's day by day coming from Bethany, coming to the temple courts, and he is teaching in the temple. And just days before he goes to the cross, and as he's teaching in the temple, masterfully silencing his opponents, these two groups... Who, who don't like each other at all, try to get Jesus to pick a side, and no matter his answer, they want to turn the crowds or the Romans against him. Now, we, we've seen this before. This is not uncommon. Often, uh, opponents will team up together to destroy a, a common foe, and here that's what they're doing. And they're going to pose this question in order to discredit or destroy him. See, they each have a totally different answer to this question. One group saying, it is lawful to pay these taxes to Caesar. He's our sovereign. We live in his land. He's providing the roads. He's, he's providing all this infrastructure. He's, he's giving us military protection. We ought to pay these taxes. That's clear. And on the other side, you have people who would say, absolutely not. And we're so convinced of this that they had actually often rebelled against this and, and revolted against these tax systems in Judea. And so Jesus is, Jesus is trapped here, right? There's no way out. This is a, a brilliant question set up with a spew of, of flattery intended to appeal to his objectivity and, and his brashness. Jesus is bold. He doesn't hesitate to answer difficult questions. He doesn't shrink back in expressing what he thinks. But now he has to pick a side. And, and so this is the, uh, the gotcha question. You all have seen this before, right? You watch the news. And, and here it's like uh, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon coming together to ask him a gotcha question, okay? And they try to force him to say something that can be used against him. See, see, if he says that you should pay the tax, then those who are opposed to this Roman rule, they will turn on him. That would be the crowds. They will turn on him. And if he says, no, you should not pay the tax, excuse me, the opposite, you should pay the tax, he would, he would be uh, siding with the Herodians. And they would say, he's not a messiah, he's not a conqueror, he's not a liberator. This is a guy that is, is just uh, aligning himself with the Roman rulers. And if he says, don't pay the tax, then he's a rebel and the Romans will seek to arrest him and convict him for stirring up controversy and revolution in the land. There is no way out of this. And so they are setting him up for the soundbite that they can use against him and trying to force him to say something that can be used for their political gain. But watch what Jesus does. He's, he's so good. And, and, and notice this. He's not like those slippery politicians that you see. You see the people that cannot answer a straightforward question. Watch this. Jesus does. He answers the question, but then he says something else that, that changes everything. That's actually more revolutionary than they an anticipated. Verse 15, it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he knows what they're doing, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. See, Jesus sees through their scheme and he calmly asks for a, a silver penny, a tribute penny, which was the amount of, of the tax. And so notice how Jesus stands in such Stark opposition to those that are asking him this question. They're so concerned about money. They're so concerned about coins and taxes. He doesn't even have a coin on him. He's not carrying any money at all. And so he has to ask someone else. You see the, the contrast of values here. And so they bring him a coin because he doesn't have any with him. And it says, they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
So just as today, we have coins with people's heads on them. This is something that's been around for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, coinage. And so he says, whose image is this on the coin? You all can see a picture of someone on this coin, can't you? And he says, who is this? And whose inscription is this? And so who would be on the coin? It's the ruler. It's the sovereign over that land. And, and, and for the Romans, coinage was one of the first and primary indicators that they, they had dominated and conquered a region. If, they, if their money was good there, then they were in power. Not only that, but, but Tiberius, whose face adorned the coin. You can see it up there on the screen. It, it included an inscription. And this inscription around his head says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Son of God. Think about that. Tiberius Caesar, son of God, and on the back, you see him sitting in a throne, and it says, high priest. This coin has a lot more symbolism than we, we often think of. This is a symbol of, of blatant idolatry, of someone claiming to be divine. It, it, is, it is someone who is standing in direct opposition to the very son of God who is holding up the coin in that moment. Whose image is this? And they say it's Caesar's head on the coin. And, and Jesus implies... This money proclaims that you are Caesar's subjects. This is so valuable to you. This is so important to you. And whether you like it or not, you use these. So it's too late to question the payment of taxes when you're using his money, his stamp. His face is on it. Don't miss this. He's saying by its very use, you acknowledge his power over you. You at the very least acknowledge his, his economic power in this region. And he says, render to Caesar then the things that are Caesar's. His face is on it. Give it to him. Notice he's not avoiding the question. He actually answers. He picks a side here. He says, pay the tax. You live in this land? Pay the tax. And there are actually numerous passages. I put one on your outline, Romans 13. I'm not going to read through it. But, but they give in Scripture the same instruction, the Scriptures that implore Christians to actually submit to the ruling authorities in their land. That can be hard to grasp sometimes, can't it? And yet, this is what we see consistently in Scripture. And before you object, and before the crowds can respond with a fury at his answer, Jesus isn't done yet. He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And in that same sentence, without hesitation, he then says, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus, in a masterful answer, he's pointing out their, their hypocrisy, the symbol of idolatry, this image of a false deity is more precious to them than their worship of God. This is not about money. This is about worship. This is about uh, the alignment of their hearts to what is truly most important. This is about submission to holy God. He's not doing some kind of teaching about separation of church and state. That's not the point here. He is pushing for, actually advocating for a kingdom and a king that is far above the state. And he's about to tell them as they marvel at him at what we covered last week. Right after this is when he's going to teach them that what God actually desires from them is that they love him with all their heart their mind, their soul, and their strength. That they give God their love and devotion. That, that though this, this fake king can, can put his face on a coin, this fake uh, deity can put his face on a coin and call for their worship, he says, no, pay him the tax. But pay God your love. Pay God your worship. Give him your hearts. See, doesn't the other part of Jesus' answer, give to God what belongs to God, rest on that same principle? Whose image is on you? Whose image is on your life? Just as the currency carries the image of, of Caesar signifying its obligation to him, the same can be said about everything that bears the image of God. Those that are 
are his, those that are stamped with his image, are dedicated and obligated to him. In the same way, our nature reflects that very image of God. I don't need to remind you of this, but Genesis 127, it says, so God created man in his own image, right? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. How are we like God? There's a lot of ways that maybe you can think of. He's given us some of his characteristics. We have a will. We have the ability to choose to sin or not to sin. When you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can choose not to sin. We have a capacity to love people and a capacity to have relationships with other people. We have an ability to relate to God personally. And by reflecting on the image we bear, we can then begin to fulfill our intended purpose. So this might sound strange, but actually a couple years ago, Several years ago, before I was uh, pastoring here full-time, I worked as a management consultant, and I worked in a money factory, okay? So that was part of my job, was helping us create currency for our nation. And you can imagine a government uh, factory is not necessarily the most efficient place in the world, but I learned a lot while I was there. And I learned about this, this practice of printing currency, and also we, we had some relationships with the U.S. Mint, where they would stamp uh, coins. Fascinating job. But what you see when this money is created is that, that it comes from a, a basically a carved, cast piece of metal in which the reverse of this image is on that piece of metal, right? And, and that reverse of this image then is, is, has raised places and low places corresponding to their opposite on the coin, to the raised and the low points of the coin and vice versa. In other words, for us, as we reflect on our image of God, those very areas in which there is depth, where there is lack, those are, are perfectly fulfilled in God, the one whose image is stamped upon us. He is the one that fills those sunken places. He is the one that perfectly fulfills all of those, those deep desires and needs that we have. And just as a coin carries the image and inscription of its source, so too we have purposes, we have longings that can only be fulfilled by God. And, and, and even the poorest and simplest of life, lives has this desire. We have this deep desire for, for things that, that matter truly, yearnings that only God can satisfy. We have this craving for a profound and deep fulfillment. Augustine, the early church father, he says it so well. He's, he's reflecting on the fact that we are image bearers of God, that we are stamped with his image. And he says, thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. I know that's old English kind of language there. He's saying you have formed us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We need a living, present, all-sufficient person, God Almighty, to satisfy our deepest longings and desires. Apart from him, we will never find rest. But, but don't you want the kind of rest that this describes? The kind of rest that Augustine is appealing to here, complete satisfaction, fullness in him, being an intimate relationship with the one that made us and that we are made for. Don't you desire that? An ultimate peace and lasting satisfaction, the fulfillment of your, your deepest longings. But what Scripture tells us and what our, our experience in this world confirms is that our original likeness to God has been marred by sin. When I used to work at that money factory, we often talked about counterfeit currency. And we would get to see and sample a lot of the counterfeits that were out there. And one of the primary ways in which, I'm going to give you some ideas here, but one of the primary ways in which counterfeiters made believable money uh, is that they would take smaller bills, like a $5 bill, and they would wash it. 
and wash all the ink off of it, but it still had that internal image, you know, that transparent image. When you hold it up to the light, you can see the face of the president. And so they take something like a $5 bill, they'd wash all the ink off of it, and then they would print on that same material a, a higher amount, something like a $50 bill with a picture of U.S. Grant on it. So what, what you would have is this thing that on the outside looks really good, and then you would hold it up to the light thinking this is $50, and you would see Lincoln's face shining through. Really uh, kind of fascinating to me. And similarly, our human nature has been influenced, it's been shaped, it's been marred, it's, it's been covered up with all kinds of things. Marred by sin, marred by our, our brokenness, and even some of the, the externalism that we see in these Pharisees and scribes, they are putting on this picture that, that they they have worth, they have value, they have status, they have significance, all this. It looks really good on the outside, but, but it's not a true reflection of the image that they bear on the inside. It's an inauthentic image, even if it, it looks really good on the outside. But what they cannot get rid of is that they do have this internal divine stamp. They know, ultimately, we know, ultimately, because of what Scripture says, whose they are. And we know that as we, as we sin, as we draw away from God, we mar that image and we feel that restlessness as we, uh, as we distance ourselves from God through our actions. Romans 1, 21 to 25 says it this way. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Some of you feel this. Even though you're in Christ right now, you, you feel what can happen when, when you incrementally give in to your desires for sin. Whether it's, it's lust or, or gluttony or any kind of addiction, you sense this as you give into these things more and more that you lose self-control increasingly. The very things that, that make us image bearers of God, we begin to lose those things more and more in pursuit of, of darkness and sin. And it becomes harder and harder to hear the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit as he tells us to stop and to turn and to repent. Maybe you've been in that place. Maybe you're in that place right now where you know you're really struggling in sin. And you are, are, are progressively distancing yourself from the very image of God as you silence his voice of conviction. There are some here that have, have so darkened their understanding, or maybe some listening that have so darkened their understanding of, of God's word and his ways and what he desires for them, his best desires for them, that you've degraded your own self and life to the point where the divine likeness has faded to a shadow of God's best intent for us. And to me, this, to see this in our young people, I see this, this all the time in the world at large. People who don't know whose they are. And as a result, they pursue a, an entirely a different person, disconnected from God's creational intent for their lives. And yet, God has made us for himself. So I, I urge you this morning, if that's you, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're holding God at a distance, if you're trending away from him into darkness and you sense yourself becoming a shadow of who we ought to be, if you're giving in to desires that you would have thought unthinkable just months or years ago, today is a call to stop. Reflect on whose image do you bear? Who do you belong to? It's his image 
that you bear. Reconcile yourself to him. Pursue him. Draw near to him because in him is where you have peace and satisfaction and that is where you have hope and where you fulfill your intended purpose. This is what a heart surrendered to God is like. We see an example of this in the ark, Noah's ark. He sends out the raven first and it just flies off and, and doesn't come back. And this is a, a picture of, of those that are, are lost in their sin, restless, like, like the waves that never find peace. And yet there's also an example of the dove who goes out over the troubled sea and returns with an olive branch in their mouth, the sign, the sign of hope and peace. And people that are wise will return to their Lord, will find sanctuary and peace in him, knowing that in him that is where true rest and satisfaction is found. Lastly, the ruined image, we now look at the restored image, the restored life. Is your, is your heart marred? Is your perception of yourself relative to, to God, is it marred? Do you, do you actually have a clear understanding of whose you are, whose image you bear? This is not hopeless. This is not a hopeless darkness. No, he has made a way to shine his glorious light upon him. How did he do that? Jesus came because humans are, are made in his image. He was able to come and take on our form, to live among us in the incarnation. Jesus came to dwell with us, and the incarnation changes everything because as he is just like us, he came into our existence. He lived among us, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, he came to present to us the perfect image of God, untarnished and clearly visible. And not only did he come to be with us, and our likeness, he took our brokenness, he took our sins upon himself on the cross, and through the resurrection, he offers us new birth, new life, all stains to be removed, all false inscriptions erased, and the original divine image, what you are made to be, restored. 1 Peter 3, 9 says it this way, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again, born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Christ, this, this tarnished image that is stamped on each one of us, as we turn to him, we can be created anew, restored to our intended purpose, restored to, to that place of perfect peace in the hands of our Savior. Our sins forgiven, washed away. Our, our hope restored, our purpose fulfilled, born again to a living hope as we surrender our souls to him. That's all that it takes. All that's necessary to restore that broken and marred image is to turn and surrender our souls to him. First John 3, 2 says it this way. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In this world, we will have troubles, but take heart, he has overcome the world. In this world now, while we wrestle with the flesh and the spirit, even for you, believer, you have the spirit of God within you. Pentecost, uh, this day, reminds us of that power that is within you as a believer in Jesus. And yet we also have this constant wrestling match with this flesh, this, this body of sin that would seek to, to drive us back to marring the image of God, to being a poor reflection of our Savior. But because of Christ, we look forward to this hope that when we see him, we shall be made like him in eternal glory because we shall see him as he is. A true reflection of our Lord.
Christ became like us so that we could become like him as we were made to be. And in the early church, as we reflect on this Memorial Day, what we would see is Christians who were dutiful in the responsibility of citizens, paying their taxes and doing all that was necessary, but who were unwilling to bow down and worship any God other than their Lord Jesus. And what resulted in in the coming decades, and we see this play out in the early church, is that many were martyred, many were killed, fed to the, the lions, or placed in the Colosseum because they were unwilling to make anyone be put in the place of God in their hearts. And yet, even in their deaths, and this is the the promise of of our salvation of the gospel, is that even in their deaths, their restless hearts found perfect rest in him. That is our hope. So I leave you with this question. The same question that that would have uh, been haunting the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians. This, this question that would stick with them as they reflect on the, the answer that Jesus just gave them, confounding their intentions. Whose image and inscription do you bear? When people look at your life, when you look at the, the internals of your life, whose image and inscription do you bear? And based on that, I urge you to give to God what belongs to him. Give to him what belongs to him. Surrender yourselves to him. Worship him. Repent from those things in your life where you know you have been marring that image and determined by his grace and the power of his spirit to be a willing and obedient reflection of our king. Give yourselves to God and trust in the Christ who by becoming like you offers true fulfillment. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that in your mercy towards us, there are many here who who want to follow you closely, but who are struggling, Lord, who are struggling in in sin and addiction and and these habits of the flesh that seem unbreakable. Lord, there there are many here this morning, I believe, who who know that they are decreasingly reflecting your glory, but we pray, Lord, I pray right now that today would be a day of change, a day of repentance, Lord a day in which we turn from sin and invite your Holy Spirit to work in even those dark places. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord, as you cleanse uh, our hearts this morning, as we turn to you and lay down our sin, we thank you that you fill us with your spirit, that you've given us purpose and fulfillment. And Lord, I pray that each person here would grow in, in, in their submission to you, in their worship of you. The one whose image we bear. And I pray that as we do so, we would better and better reflect that glorious image. Lord, we love you and we submit to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.